Welcome to Immigration Nerds. In today's episode, Erickson Immigration Group attorneys Justin Parsons, Jeff Quillett, and Hiba Amber hold a webinar on the latest proposal to H-1B CAT. Namely, one, requiring petitioners to register electronically, and two, reversing the order in which lottery selections are made in order to increase the amount of master's degrees admitted into the country. USCIS argues this proposal will help save money for companies and petitioners during the process, as well as attract higher skilled workers into the U.S. EIG breaks down this proposal and analyzes its real-world implications if passed, and how would it affect companies and applicants this coming lottery season. I'm Ian Gaines. Come join us Beyond Borders. I am here with my colleagues, Justin Parsons and Hiba Anver, as well as Ian Gaines, who is busy with technical and recording support. Um, thanks, everyone, for joining us as we attempt to uncomplicate the complicated, right? Let's make sense of some of these of this proposed rule um, that may impact the H-1B cap filing season that is already upon us. As far as the proposed rule that was released on the 3rd, so on Monday of this week by USCIS, there are two primary pieces, and we're going to dive into the details um, with my colleagues here in a bit, but just big picture, you know, we could think about it as far as the first change would be an electronic registration system that would replace kind of everybody taking their FedExes and mailing out their H-1B cap cases on April 1st. And then there would also be a shift in how the USCIS allocates the available uh, slots every year. So this would be in an effort to kind of prioritize individuals with master's and higher level degrees. But we'll get into kind of what this actually looks like and what it'll mean in practice. But before we do, I'm going to turn it over to Hiba. And Hiba, if you want to kind of how did we get here in the first place and, and help kind of set the stage? Thanks. So you mentioned that this proposed rule basically has two primary changes that it wishes to implement. I think that the image here says it all. What the H-1B CAP system has historically involved is basically the availability of 85,000 new visas every fiscal year with actual physical petitions being submitted for those limited slots, numbering close to 200,000 at times, sometimes more. Last year, it was just shy of 200,000. So you've got two primary changes that are being proposed, and you have two reasons for why these two particular changes have been incorporated into this proposed rule. So to begin with, as everyone recalls, at the start of Trump's administration, one of the executive orders known as Buy American, Hire American indicated that the administration's priority was going to be to help to ensure that H-1B visas were awarded to the most skilled and highest paid petitions um, and beneficiaries. So the the reversal of the order in which the H-1B cap is conducted is the administration's way of achieving that particular stated goal. Um, with respect to pre-registration, the number of petitions that are actually received by USCIS in relation to the number of available visas uh, is fairly disproportionate. So according to this rule, their position is that by pre-registering and then only conducting a lot lottery from the registrations received as opposed to having each of the petitioners and beneficiaries send in an actual petition, the result is going to be elimination of considerable backlog as well as a reduction in the cost to the petitioners submitting the actual H-1Bs. You know, USCIS is very clearly trying to take some of the, the legwork and trying to make lives easier at the uh, USCIS service centers. 
so if you actually read the rule, which is about um, it's about 140 pages long, a lot of what the government is talking about is uh, there's probably about 30 to 35 pages of analysis about how this will save companies and individuals and lawyers money. Um, and they go through, you know, kind of, kind of a long uh, explanation and analysis in terms of, you know, f- instead of folks having to prepare all these cap cases, you know, starting in January or February, pre-registration will occur and then folks will only, companies will only need to then prepare the cap cases for the ones that they know have been selected. So a lot of it is uh, almost like a self-justification in terms of that it's going to save companies a lot of money in terms of not having to prepare applications. So if you happen to take a look at the rule, there's about, like as I said, about 30 to 35 pages of analysis. Reading through it, I'm not exactly certain where they got that data from or the source of the data or even given the fact that the, the original rule came out in 2011, whether that it's old data or whether it's current data. But it's an interesting point if you happen to um, want to peruse the 150-page the proposed rule. The other important thing to point out here is that the proposal says it's going to save the USCIS about $1.6 million annually in terms of processing these applications. Um, you know, f- folks in the service center, what they have to do is they have to open the petitions. They have to um, assign them individual unique identifiers, in which then they scan in and do the cap, you know, the, the drawing for the lottery. Um, and then in addition, all the cases that are not selected out of the 85,000 or which turns out to be a little more, as we'll discuss further, everyone knows that they have to return those petitions. So it's a combination of manpower or I guess woman power um, that they would save. And in addition to uh, all the, the envelopes and the, the, the return postage that, that, that the government will save in terms of returning all these cap cases. So, and this is all explained in the proposed rule, but I, I think it's an interesting thing to, to point out that um, this is not an original idea from the current administration. This is something that USCIS has been has been working on, um, you know, I would say for, for, for about 10 years now. Yeah, thanks, Justin. So do you want to kind of dive into a little bit more detail as far yeah. as what the registration process looks like? Again, just to reiterate kind of out front, this is, you know, only a proposal. Um, and again, at the end, we'll have kind of what's happening next in timelines. But under this proposal, kind of what does the registration look like? What's in, What does that entail? Yeah. So the, the proposed rule has come out now. Uh, the government's going to allow for 30 days uh, for a notice period to where companies and individuals can submit a notice and comment in response to the proposed rule. Um, you can either do this electronically or by, by mail. Um, and we'll include uh, kind of the information instructions later on uh, in the webinar. But the proposal here in a nutshell is that USCIS on their website is going to come out and they're going to say, um, hypothetically, March the 15th, registration is open. It's going to allow individuals and companies and, and attorneys to go in through the USCIS website itself and um, essentially create this registration uh, for the individuals that they intend to, to file a cap for. The idea here and the, one of the things that they floated is that they're, they're supposed to get at least 30 days notice uh, in terms of when they're going to open up this, uh, this registration period. So hypothetically, they say that they're going to do it roughly two weeks in advance of April the 1st. So perhaps if we continue on the path, we should hear something in February that they would be opening up the, the registration, I would say, say mid-March. Again, these are kind of guidelines, nothing too firm, but this is something that, that they propose may happen in terms of the timeline. 
In terms of registering, so the idea is that the, the, the company or the attorney would log into the USCIS website. You can't do bulk registration, so you'd have to do it for each individual that you're, gonna, that you're um, you know, registering for the lottery. So you'd have to enter basic information um, you know, about the company, the individual, the education credentials. There will be some sort of attestation that there's a bona fide job offer for the individual. Um, and then they also mentioned that if the individual is represented by an attorney, the company is represented by an attorney, there will be some sort of electronic G28 that's, uh, that's involved. They do note that once registrations are submitted through the USCIS website, they cannot be edited. Uh, so you'll submit it and then they'll do this drawing and then you'll hear essentially hear back in terms of which cases have been, uh, have been selected for the lottery. So the, one of the things that they point out here is, um, you know, obviously, similarly, uh, one company cannot file an H-1B petition, uh, two petitions for the same person. So those same rules are going to apply for the registration. Um, again, as I talked about in the last slide, uh, how they're going to do this is they're going to assign uh, individual case identifiers to each, to each registration that is submitted by the attorney or the company. And then that's how you will essentially know if your case has been selected. They have stated that there is no registration fee for these uh, for these 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 registrations. So uh, hypothetically, yeah. you could do um, five thousand, and there would be no charge to it. Um, we'll see if that that holds up, but that is the uh, that is the idea so far. So, Justin, I think this actually would be a good time to discuss this whole flooding the system uh, controversy, if you will, that's been attached to this proposed rule because a lot of people feel that. While the administration's purpose may be to try to, in some way, limit or filter having certain people qualify for these uh, H-1B cap slots, um, a lot of people have actually said that they've basically accomplished the reverse, right? Like they've yeah. actually made it easier for certain companies to submit a higher volume of requests to file an H-1B cap petition. So can you touch a little bit about what this whole flooding yeah. the system topic is? So there's... There's a couple pages in the in the the proposed rule which talk about if USCIS sees this uh, this practice of you know of, of companies filing these you know registering folks for the cap and then what, essentially what they're going to do is track to see those companies that don't follow through and file applications. So there's going to be I would say more enforcement and more uh, attention being paid to to those companies who maybe. Uh, do the this you know these these registrations and then don't actually fall through, so that's discussed. What's not discussed though is the fact that um, because registration is free, um, there's there's nothing that prevents at least in the proposed rule from companies who, uh, especially consulting companies who have large amounts of, of of human resources offshore. You know maybe last year they filed five thousand petitions. And because it's free and because they, they understand that over the course of the next three or four years, they may be bringing 20,000 of these individuals to the U.S., there's nothing that prevents these companies from a legal or from a financial standpoint from just registering all those 20,000. So I think if you're, if you're concerned about, you know, IT consulting companies with a lot of offshore manpower, woman power, whatever you want to call it, kind of flooding the system with with all those folks, I think that's a valid concern. And that's something that we've kind of tossed around the idea, which is that something that prevents these companies from filing 10,000 you know, applications a year is the fact that they're paying attorney's fees and filing fees. 
if it's free to register 15,000 people, why not do it? So that, I think that's one of the concerns is that, you know, you may see the, the overall, you know, cap numbers go up from 190,000 to 250,000. And <clears throat> maybe what this administration hasn't thought about is kind of the, some of the business um, decisions that some of these consulting companies are going to make that are ultimately going to undermine why they think they implemented this in the first place. Well, then just to play devil's advocate, would would a proper response then be that that concern of flooding the system is properly counteracted by the fact that they're now also proposing to reverse the order of how the cap is conducted? Because going back to your example, you've got, you know, uh, certain companies with a lot of offshore folks sitting abroad waiting to come into the U.S. Well, those are also the same individuals that probably either have a bachelor's degree or a foreign master's, which would not qualify them for the U.S. master's cap in the first place. So does one provision in this kind of two-pronged proposed rule counterbalance the impact of the other? So we'll get there. Um, just just hang with me for, for a couple minutes while I kind of go through the stats here. And, and you know, um, I'll make my point here in, in a minute, uh, kind of like Rachel Maddow style. I'll, I'll kind of take you <laughs> along a, few, a, a couple minute journey, but just hang on for my point. So I, I think, you know, the, the numbers over the course of the past, you know, five years, you know, roughly you've seen, um, you know, from 125 to 198, I think you've seen kind of the result of, you know, the current administration and fewer companies wanting to file cap cases. So roughly, again, I think that one of the things that folks think is that there's 85,000 slots. They select 85,000 slots, uh, 85,000 applications. You can generally see that the, that um, on average, they, they select roughly 97,000 uh, for the 85,000 slots, given the fact that they um, anticipate some of those cases are going to be denied or revoked or whatnot. So they, they, they give it some wiggle room. It's and then just in terms of breaking down the numbers, you can see that roughly... 2017, 111,000 regular caps, so bachelor's cap petitions, and then the uh, folks with masters, about 90,000, 87,000 to be exact. USCIS has said is that one of the alerts says that masters cases that are selected are going to go up 16%, which is a bit misleading if you actually read this rule and you actually understand the math and how they're going to do this. So what they're going to do is they're going to, the old way in terms of the selection process is they would conduct the, um, the 20,000 master's cap and then anyone uh, who had a master's degree who was not selected then filter down into the, the 65,000 uh, bachelors. Now what they're doing is they're going to flip that. So they're going to do the drawing for the 65,000 first. So that's going to be inclusive of anyone with a bachelor's degree and a master's degree. And then anyone with a master's uh, is going to then filter down to the, to the 20,000 uh, cap. So the master's folks are still going to get two bites of the apple in terms of qualifying for the cap. But what's going to happen from a, um, a probability perspective is that given that the numbers remain what they have been over the, over the last four or five years, it does give master's folks a 3% advantage of being selected. So the way that this is being sold by USCIS is that the masters are going to go up 16%, but if you actually understand, do the math and actually read the full memo, it essentially goes up from 34,000 selected to 39,000 selected. So my hot take on this is that the, the USCIS and the current administration saying that this is 
uh, all about the Buy American, Hire American Act, and you know, treating immigration more towards you know skilled workers and folks with with higher degrees. It's not exactly accurate because what they've done is recycled this this idea from you know the Obama administration. And if you actually look at the numbers, it's it's a three percent chance increase of being selected if you're a master's holder. I don't think this is about that. I think this is about uh, USCIS wanting to eliminate paperwork, which is fine. Uh, but I think, you Certainly know, not streamlined. yeah, the, 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 the kind of the false narrative here is that it's going to really benefit uh, folks with master's degree is just not statistically accurate. And if what you have is uh, counteracting the issue, which we've talked about before, which is that more folks with consulting companies uh, bring in, you know, register more individuals because it's free and the number of individuals with bachelors increases, it's going to offset the 3%. So, um, you know, there's a there's the note on the USCIS website saying 16%. Uh, it's not accurate. Um, and if you read the full memo and if you do the math and if you do, we, we did some dry runs today in terms of what that number would look like if there was an actual increase uh, in bachelor's applicants, it's going to offset it. So I think that's kind of our, our, our thoughts about, about this process. It's really not going to help master's degrees holders. And I think if anything, there's more of an opportunity for it to hurt companies you know, if, if some of these offshoring uh, consulting firms bring in more more folks. What it does is it disadvantages those companies who have been playing by the rules, yeah. who have been recruiting, who have been directly employing your individuals, paying appropriate wages. It opens the floodgates, as you said, to kind of, you know, people who could apply with essentially frivolous applications. And, you know, the, the rule itself, when you go through it, acknowledges this problem. And it's a little, um, you know, when they talk about notice and comment, one of the comments that specifically you know, requested is essentially, how can we stop this? Because they talk about deterring fraud. They talk about, you know, the obligations on the employer. But at the end of the day, they acknowledge they don't really, there's no teeth. So there isn't anything that would discourage, you know, in companies, as Justin mentioned, from flooding the system. The one thing I would say, kind of devil's advocate to that would be, if you think about it with some of the other changes in place, as far as the new form for the LCAs, as far as kind of the third-party placement memorandum, the approach of the administration to discourage and kind of push down filings, we may not see the system as flooded as much as we would initially anticipate the first year um, because of some of the discouragement actions the administration's taken in other realms. But this proposed rule itself certainly opens the door to a, a, a spike in filings. And I think one of the questions, and I'll throw this out there, um, and Hiba, maybe it kind of segues to, to your discussion as far as how will you know if you've been selected? What does it mean? Um, Hiba, what does it look like as far as if someone is selected, do we know um, what that process will look like with USCIS? So we know a little bit in terms of the information that they've provided, but the information that they've provided is not that clear. I mean, if a petitioner registers a beneficiary and is indeed selected under this pre-registration process, then they are going to receive notification in some form. And according to the proposed rule, they will then have 60 days within which to actually file the H-1B petition. Um, and, you know, just to clarify, the shift here is USCIS wants to conduct the lottery, not from a stack of petitions, but from a stack of pre-registration submissions, right? So there's still, you know, a lottery that's being selected. It's just that the only time that a petitioner would have to actually file the petition itself would be if he, it rather, already knows that it's been selected. So, 
you know, notification in some respect, and then 60 days within which to actually submit the petition. And then once filed, that petition would undergo the same scrutiny and adjudication process that a petition would had it been selected under the old system. Yeah, that's a good point, because that's one of the questions that's come up is, you know, if you are selected, is this automatically, you know, are you kind of home free being selected in this pre-registration process? Do the adjudication standards change? Uh, the adjudication standards don't change, if anything. I think that this is another hint at the way that things are going to continue to trend in the future. That's just my personal opinion. Yeah. Um, I think that we're still going to see, you know, the same type of, um, you know, RFEs and scrutiny on issues such as wage. I think that folks that are placing foreign nationals off-site at third party and clients are going to see the same level of scrutiny. So I don't foresee um, this changing the adjudication standards at all. Yeah, there's nothing in the rule that would suggest any changes to the actual standards. And the other piece to notice as far as a notification and then your filing window to actually file the H-1B petition, you know, which would essentially what would traditionally be filed April 1st. So you get the notice that you've been selected. You have at least 60 days to file your H-1B petition for this individual employee. If you go through the rules, it's, it's a little unclear and it's interesting to see as far as the potential for kind of staggering these uh, notification periods. For instance, they discuss the possibility of you'll be notified and then there'll be a number of petitions that can be filed in April and May. Then there'll be cases that can be filed in May and June. So, you know, we've seen over the past couple, two years at least increased uncertainty in adjudication timelines, timelines you know, taking longer and longer across the board. And this seems to be another place where they're kind of injecting some uh, uncertainty into the overall timeline for bringing these individuals on board. But you know, what is interesting is if this is successfully implemented, and by if I mean a big underscore if, do you think that there's a possibility they would bring premium processing back for CAF cases because now they have a more limited pool of petitions that they have to worry about when it comes to expedited processing? It's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, if it's about caseload of these adjudicators, then then obviously instead of having to you know, hire the, the additional workload of opening up, you know, an additional 125,000 petitions, um, those individuals could then work on, on adjudicating some of these cases. So it's a, I would say it's a strong possibility. So I guess, you know, we're getting a lot of questions. Uh, we're going to run through uh, one or two more slides and then we're going to, we're going to start jumping onto some of these questions. So Hiba, what has to happen for the government to implement this, this registration uh, process? And what, what do you think are the chances of this happening by March the, the 15th? And if it doesn't get implemented by March the 15th, like what happens? You know, it's very unclear. Um, there has been quite a bit of information provided in this proposed rule. For example, the proposed rule specifies that USCIS estimates that it requires 2,430 hours in order to complete the work necessary to implement the pre-registration process, right? But here's what we don't know. We don't know how much of that work uh, they've already started, how much of the work has already been completed behind the scenes. So that makes me think, you know, that it's not necessarily going to be implemented in time for this particular upcoming cap season. Uh, the other thing that makes me believe that we're not going to see the pre-registration aspect of it in time for this upcoming cap season is the fact that they've included a severability clause. They've actually reserved the right to proceed with one of the two significant changes proposed in the event that the other change runs into some sort of unexpected delay, right? Uh, and they actually go as far as to state, 
in the event that one of the proposed changes is invalidated by a court of competent jurisdiction. So that kind of makes me speculate whether or not they're anticipating a class action lawsuit on some grounds. Oh, absolutely. Um, But then, you know, continuing on, I can go on and, and, and recite a list of reasons why I think this is not going to be in, you know, in effect by the time this next cap season rolls around. Not the very least the fact that they clarified that this pre-registration system is going to be built on top of USCIS's current technical infrastructure, which yeah. is not a good sign. But yeah, then again, I mean, they just not not to not to interrupt, but I mean, they spent what was it X amount of millions of dollars to to make some of the forms electronic, and I think at the end of the day, they were only able to do one, uh, and this was in the I think the Boston Globe several years ago. So it, it doesn't give a lot of. Um, you know, confidence that they're going to be able to pull this, this off. And, this and this, they've made incremental progress, and as far as some of more some smaller type applications, yeah. whether it's replacement green cards or kind of you know smaller applications, but the H one B cap and the H one B cap filings is a huge undertaking. Yeah. It I is guess... difficult to see, but you know every announcement whenever you you hear um, the director of USCIS uh, speak or you see you know the administ- the agency kind of release talking points, it, it seems like they're certainly kind of going full speed ahead. That was what I was about to say, which has been what has thrown me off since this proposed rule came out. All signs seem to point to the fact that we're probably going to see, in the event that this is actually implemented, we're probably going to see reversal of the manner in which the cap is conducted with this next lottery season, but maybe not necessarily pre-registration. But USCIS has continuously reiterated its intent to implement pre-registration with this upcoming cap season time and time again prior to the release of the proposed rule. So I kind of, you know, I, I, I kind of find myself back at square one mm-hmm. in terms of the likelihood of this being implemented. Yeah, and especially if you think about kind of the 30-day window as far as when they would put something on the website and the, the you know, advance notice they would need to provide for sort of that registration period, um, you know, and then with the April 1st kind of deadline coming up anyways, it's going to be a tight timeline. So at a minimum, I would think, you know, we're going to be working closely over the next several months and, and really kind of almost on a weekly basis to to adjust. Yeah. So I think um, in the interest of time, we'll uh, just go through the next two slides and take some of the questions. But yeah, I think one of the questions that we got is what I mentioned before, which is that USCIS anticipates that this new process is going to increase the chances for master's holders to be selected into the cap by 3%. So, you know, it goes from 34,000 to 39,000. Those are their estimates based on prior run rates. However, it doesn't take into account, you know, as we mentioned before, if there are more bachelor's applicants who apply uh, from abroad through a consulting company. So I think that there's more analysis that has to be done as to whether this is actually going to help you know, master's holders, I think 3% is such a small number. Um, so I think one of the narratives is that it's going to really help master's holders. And I just don't think it's going to. Yeah. And if you read their, their justifications too, I mean, it's, they yeah. talk about protecting us workers. They're not talking about the H1B and the kind of the economic benefits of the overall program um, to any extent. So Hiba, if you can just maybe explain the timeline for the notice and comment period, and then if somebody wants to submit a comment, whether it's an individual, whether it's a company, um, how do they do it? And then what do we recommend as a law firm in terms of folks doing? Sure. So uh, public comments are going to be accepted until January 2nd, 2019. Um, I think it is important to note that 
there was only a 30-day notice and comment period um, made available for this particular proposed rule, which is maybe a little odd, you know, because generally speaking, you would anticipate at least 60 days. But for this particular proposed rule, we have until January 2nd. The one thing that I would have to say, and they point out, and this is this is all with all uh, comments that you submit, it's that it's a part of the public record. So if you're a company and you're going to submit something, um, just know that that your your information and your your thoughts are going to be shared publicly. Please make sure to tune in to part two of this conversation, where Justin, Jeff, and Hiba answers questions and concerns from web audience members regarding the lottery system. See you there. For more content and immigration updates, please visit our website at eiglaw.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter at eig underscore law and our Instagram underscore eiglaw to join in the conversation. Thanks for listening. See you next time.